Today we're doing another one of our Q&A Sundays. This is something that we try to do every few months to be able to work through some of the questions that we've got. And uh, especially this term, we decided that we wanted to have some Q&A Sundays that are related to the series that we've just done. As you know, we've spent this term walking through God's big story and the hope was that this would provoke some good questions, which it certainly did. So many, in fact, that we're going to have two weeks of Q&A Sundays. So we're going to do one today and then, as I said, we're going to have our anniversary service next week. And then the week after that, we're going to do some more questions. So today, we're looking at the first part of the story. So particularly looking at Designed and Broken, the first two episodes. And then some other questions that are about how the Bible came to be put together at all. And then uh, in two weeks' time, we'll look at some of the questions that come towards the end of the story as well. So you do have teaching notes inside of Caring Connection, but you'll see they're very blank. Uh, That's so you can write down whatever you want to write down uh, in whatever order you would like to write those things down. So first question that we had is this. In Genesis chapter 1, God put the people in charge of all animals, but he provided the grains and fruit to eat. Does this mean that we're meant to be vegetarian? Now, this question was asked by a lot of people. There was a lot of concern when we did this first week where we talked about God's original creation and it was good that people were paying attention because uh, the question was raised, were we supposed to not ever eat meat? So let's have a look at some of the passages that raise this question. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 to 30 says this. This is God talking to Adam. I'm putting you in charge of the fish, the birds, and all the wild animals. I've provided all kinds of grain and all kinds of fruit for you to eat. But for all the wild animals and for all the birds, I've provided grass and leafy plants for food. So oddly enough, when you read that, there is no mention about anyone or anything eating meat, including animals eating meat either. And so we can understand that this is probably what God's original design was, because when God originally created us, there was no death. And so it would be kind of awkward if you started to eat something that was still alive. That would be something that would probably be unpleasant for everyone involved. And so in God's original design, there was no death and therefore we couldn't eat meat because obviously there was nothing that was dead. It is this beautiful picture of harmony and peace and there being enough and this sense of being able to eat this delicious fruit that was all around them, these delicious grains and uh, all of the animals being provided for. However, we know that we walked away from God's best and in choosing to walk away from God's best, death was introduced into our existence and our experience. And so that then opened the opportunity up for us to be able to potentially eat meat. So is that okay or not? Well, Genesis chapter 9, a few chapters later, has these words for us. So this is God talking to Noah, and he said, Have many children so that your descendants will live all over the earth. All the animals, birds, and fish will live in fear of you. They're all placed under your power. Now you can eat them as well as green plants. I give them all to you for food. The one thing you must not eat is meat with blood still in it. I forbid this because the life is in the blood. So God clearly changed that set of instructions, but it's really, really sad when you look at what's there. That picture of peace and harmony that was there compared to verse 2, all the animals, birds and fish will live in fear of you. They're all placed under your power. And so all the dynamics have changed there. But in the midst of that, God does give the instruction that we're allowed to eat meat. 
However, we're not supposed to eat meat that's got blood in it. And so you would be aware that there are still people today who believe that that's true. And so animals have to be killed a certain way where all of the blood is drained out. Uh, and that's where we get the understanding that we talked about in the satisfied week, this idea that blood is representative of life. And so God was effectively saying, you're not to eat the life of other animals. The blood needs to drain away. The good news for us, except for those of us who are vegetarians, uh, the good news for us is that we don't live by Old Testament laws and Old Testament rules. We try to listen to what Jesus has to say, and if Jesus says something, that's where we take our cue. If it then isn't something that Jesus clearly says, then we kind of expand out from there. But we're very fortunate that Jesus is very, very clear on this topic about what we are and aren't allowed to eat. In Mark chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus was talking to a crowd and he said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing that goes into you from the outside which can make you ritually unclean. Rather, it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. Listen then, if you have ears. When, the, when he left the crowd and went into the house, his disciples asked him to explain this saying. You're no more intelligent than the others, which is a little bit harsh. I don't like that translation whatsoever. We'll talk more about translations in a little bit. A probably more accurate translation is what the next verse says. Don't you understand? Rather than, <laughs> you're not very bright, are you? Uh, but Jesus says, nothing that goes into you from outside can really make you unclean because it doesn't go into your heart, but into your stomach and then goes out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared that all foods are fit to be eaten. So we sometimes think that it was later on that Peter in particular was the one who did away with Jewish laws, but Jesus was actually very clear himself. He said, it doesn't matter what you eat because what goes into your body goes out of your body. So that can't make you clean or unclean. More it's what you need to think about is what's happening in your heart, what your motives are, because that's what comes out in your words and in your actions. That's far more important to focus on. So fire up the barbecue. Steaks are on. We're allowed to eat sausages. It's all good. It's all good. All right, next question. Is rare steak all right? Rare steak, yes. Medium rare is best. <laughs> God said, you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except the tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is bad. You must not eat the fruit of this tree. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, Eve says, we may eat except the tree in the middle. God told us not to eat the fruit of that tree or even touch it. Isn't this a lie? Isn't this pre the fall? And so the question that I think is being asked here is to say, well, how could Eve lie before we'd walked away from God's best, what we call the fall? How could Eve possibly lie about something? Lying wasn't a thing until we chose to walk away from God's best. So again, let's go back to the original texts that we looked at with this. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, God gives these very clear instructions. You may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except the tree that gives knowledge of what's good and what is bad. You must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you surely will die. But then in Genesis chapter 3, when the snake, the serpent, comes along and tries to trick Eve and says, well, did God really say that? We have Eve's response that we've just talked about. Eve says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So the question is, is this a lie? And so for me, I would say that a lie is something where you're deliberately trying to mislead someone else or you're deliberately trying to say something that is untrue. 
And so it is a good question to say, well, how could that possibly happen before the fall? I would say that Eve is not lying here. Rather, this is just a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding, kind of a mistake like a little kid who just kind of misunderstands something that's going on there. And so there's nothing evil or selfish about that, nothing broken in that, which are the things that will come after the fall. It is something that's just kind of a misunderstanding. It could even have been what Adam said specifically to Eve. So we don't know that Eve was the one who just came up with this, you're not even allowed to touch it. It could have been that Adam said that to her, which leads us into the next question, which is along similar lines. God talks to Adam, Satan talks to Eve. God calls Adam, where are you? But God doesn't call Eve or talk to her before the fall. Why does this happen? Was it for a specific purpose? Why did God not speak to Eve and instruct her? It's kind of like hearing from the horse's mouth uh, over the page. My thought is the instructions which God gave diluted, got diluted when Adam communicated to Eve. And I think this happens even today. Dilution of things and instructions. If God had spoken to Eve like God spoke to Adam, then maybe the fall could have been avoided. So there's a little bit to unpack here. First of all, we want to say we don't know that God didn't speak to Eve at all. We don't have any record of that, of course, but we also don't have a lot of what God said to Adam either. So we don't know for sure that God never spoke to Eve. There's no record of it. But it is important to say regardless that what Eve did didn't happen because of miscommunication. It's not like Eve did something that she didn't know that she was allowed, uh, that she wasn't supposed to do. Kind of like God didn't tell her about it, and so out of ignorance or naivety, she then went ahead and ate the fruit that she wasn't supposed to. As we've just looked at, she knew exactly what God had said, don't eat from that tree. In actual fact, she had added to it, don't eat from that tree, in fact, don't even touch it. But she still went ahead and ate it anyway. So walking away from God's best, the fall, didn't happen just because God didn't directly say to Eve, you're not allowed to eat from this tree. She knew that that was something that she wasn't supposed to do and still made a deliberate choice to walk away from that. Having said that, I think the point that's being raised in this question is actually a really, really helpful one and really important for us. The reality that if we just rely on other people then we open ourselves up to hearsay, to things being diluted, to misinterpretation. And that's a really, really good flag for us. That God's best, what he created us for, is to be in a relationship with him, to hear directly from him and to walk directly with him. And so if we live our lives where the only things that we learn about God are things that other people tell us, what other people say is, this is what God's like, this is what God has said, this is what God's saying to you. If we always rely on other people, that puts us in a very dangerous place because it is easy for people to misinterpret, for things to get watered down and to miss it. And so it's a good challenge for us to say, we can learn from other people for sure. I learn from other people all the time. I learn from you. Hopefully you learn from me sometimes. So we can learn from each other. But if that's the only way that we interact with God, we've actually missed something. God wants us to be reading scripture for ourselves. God wants us to be praying, listening to him, pouring our hearts out to him ourselves and having that direct relationship with him. So that's a really, really good call to focus on. All right, next question. Why weren't Adam and Eve given the understanding before eating the fruit? It seemed like they never realized that they were naked when they actually were. 
So I had to read this a few times and kind of pull this question apart to be able to get to what I think uh, we're talking about. And so if this was your question and I don't answer it, please come and chat with me a little bit more afterwards or if I've misunderstood what you've said. So there's a few different questions within this question. First question is, did they know that they were naked before they ate the fruit from the tree? And the answer to that is no. They didn't know that they were naked. They didn't realise that. But I don't actually think that's a bad thing. In fact, I think that that's a good thing because there is something very beautiful about that picture. There's something very beautiful about us as humanity being able to be completely open with each other, with nothing to hide, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to be ashamed of. This sense of intimacy that is a really, really beautiful picture. And they didn't know any different to that, which is a good thing. And in actual fact, God said when he finished creation that it was very good. So in God's mind, there clearly wasn't an issue with them being naked. However, we culturally have changed that. And so we now have all of this stuff that's attached to nakedness in all sorts of different ways. Some of it is very negative, that we project negative feelings onto ourselves in terms of what we think we should look like and all of that sort of stuff. But also culturally, there's just some things there. So I'm not advocating that we all get our gear off and walk around naked. That's not the point that I'm trying to make here, just to clear that up. But what we do want to say is that originally there was this beautiful picture of just complete openness without any issues about it. And so the issue that's there is not actually about them being naked. It's about what happened when they got that understanding and when that kicked in and the fear and the shame that was then attached to that. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, is where we read that after they ate the fruit, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made loincloths for themselves. So it's interesting that this first reaction for them was to cover up, to hide themselves away, to stop showing themselves fully to each other. That's the instant reaction. And then a couple of verses later, after God comes looking for them and says, where have you gone? The response is, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so here are some other emotions that kick in, fear, embarrassment, shame. But all of those things are not in any way attached to the nakedness, it's the choice that was made to say, we have walked away from God's best and now we're aware that we've chosen to do that. And because we've walked away from God's best, now there's this brokenness in our relationship with each other. There's this brokenness in our relationship with God, so much so that we feel like we need to hide ourselves away. So I don't think the issue so much is with the fact that they were naked beforehand and they weren't aware of it. I think the issue is what they did with the understanding once they got it. And it's very, very symbolic. This beautiful picture of intimacy and openness that's then turned into a place of fear and shame and hiding ourselves away, which comes from choosing to walk away from God's best. As I said, if I've misunderstood that question, or if you want to talk more about that, then please uh, come and see me afterwards. So those were some questions that came out of the first couple of weeks of the series, but then there was a few other questions that were sent in that were specifically related to the Bible, in terms of being able to say, okay, if the Bible is this book, that helps us to understand God's story, let's have a better understanding about how it came together. So there's a couple of questions that are actually linked together, so let's have a look at those. The first question was, why are there only 66 books in the Bible? 
There are other writings or epistles or letters that were discovered. For example, the writing of St. Thomas. Why is it not added in the Bible? And then there was another question that's related. If there is only one Bible, why is the Catholic Bible different from other Bibles like the King James Version? So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive here, so try and stay with me. But I know some of you are going to tune out, and that's okay. I'll bring you back at the end, so it'll be fine, I promise. So there is this big conspiracy theory that's kicked in over the last probably 10 or 20 years that is partly because of uh, some writers, particularly Dan Brown, who wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code that had some really amazing, beautiful conspiracy theories that are very inaccurate. Uh, and also a guy named Richard Dawkins, who is a very famous atheist. Uh, both of those guys and some others started to throw out this theory that when the church was kind of starting to kick into gear in about the second or third century, they came up with this big theory where they'd get rid of all of these other books that didn't prove what they really wanted to get across. And so they said there was all these other books that everyone was using, and so this group, this secret group, got together and they got rid of the other ones so no one would ever hear about them. So it's really important that you all know that there's these other books that aren't in the Bible and it was very deliberate. In actual fact, what happened was the other way around. There was so much agreement about what was in the Bible in the first couple of hundred years of the church, the books that we now call the canon of Scripture, and the word canon just means measuring stick. There was so much agreement about the 66 books that we've got that no one felt there was a need to write them down and say, this is the official list. Everyone just agreed, these are the books that everyone's using, these are the books that help us to understand God's story. But as we got into the second and third century, there were some other philosophies, particularly Gnosticism, that started to kick in, but some other theories as well that were about Jesus not actually being God, that started to push against the dominant narrative that the church had believed since Jesus had been around. And so out of that, the church did make a decision to say, okay, well, we'd better just kind of get some clarity about this. And so the first guy to do that was a guy named Athanasius in 367 AD. He was the first one who wrote down and said, these are the books that everyone's using. And that then went to a number of different councils of the church through the next 50 years or so, where everyone was given the opportunity to speak into that and say, do you agree that these are the books that we should call the Bible? And there was unanimous agreement about that. So what was that canon of scripture? What was the Bible? Well, it was obviously the two parts of the Bible that we have, the Old Testament, and that was a pretty simple decision because the Old Testament was simply the Hebrew scriptures. So they just said, these are the scriptures that Jewish people have been using for hundreds of years, so we're just going to take them. That's the Old Testament all the way up to Malachi. The New Testament then was the one where they had to work through and say, okay, well, which books are going to be in the New Testament and which ones aren't? And to do that, they used five different tests to be able to talk about what was going to be in the New Testament and what wasn't. So the first was, uh, that is it apostolic? So first of all, does it come from someone who was one of the apostles? So one of the 11 disciples that was left, obviously Judas had died by this point. So the 11 disciples and then Paul was the book written by one of those, or were they involved in dictating that? So someone else might have written it, but they were the ones who said, this is what you need to write down. So was it apostolic? Secondly, was it authentic? So did it ring true? Did it make sense? And I'll give you a very clear example of that in a couple of minutes. Was it ancient? So had it been used since the very earliest days of the church? So had it been around for a long, long time? Or was it something fairly recent? 
Was it accepted in the sense that the majority of churches were using it or was it just a couple of stranger churches had decided they were going to embrace these? So was most people using it or not? And then lastly, was it accurate? Does it match with what most of the church has believed and has taught? And so they looked at all of the writings that were around and they kind of sorted them and said, well, these the ones that we've got in the New Testament fit all of those criteria. And then there's some other ones that may be interesting or may be helpful or may not be but we're not going to include those because they don't fit each of those criteria. So that's how the Bible came to be in the original 66 books that we've got. But part of the question was then what about the Catholic Bible So if you, or the Orthodox Bible as well? So if you've got friends who are Catholic or Orthodox, you would know that they've got some extra books in the Bible. They would have another 7 to 15 books in their Bible, which are what we call the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha means hidden. So these are the books that were written between Malachi, who was the last Old Testament prophet, about 400 years before Jesus, and the New Testament when Jesus arrived. So there was this gap of 400 years. And so people were writing stuff during that time, um, but it was a question about, well, do those books get included in the Bible or don't they? And so in most Catholic Bibles, you'll discover that those books are in there, and in Orthodox Bibles, you'll find them as well. So where did they come from? Well, another big fancy word, uh, this Septuagint is where that came from. So Septuagint means 70, and the reason why this Septuagint came into being is that there's this legend that 72 writers were chosen to translate the Hebrew Bible, so the Old Testament, into Greek because that was the default language of the time. So these 72 people got together and wrote that in 72 days. That's the legend that existed. And so that was then presented as this Greek Bible, the Septuagint, uh, which was much more helpful because obviously a lot of people didn't speak Hebrew. So the Greek translation became normal for a lot of people. And the Catholic Church in particular latched onto this and said, we're going to use the Septuagint which included the Apocrypha as our default Bible, which I find really, really fascinating because normally when we think about the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, we would think they would go back to as original documents as they possibly could. But in actual fact, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church said, no, we're going to use this Greek translation as our understanding of what the Bible's all about. The Apocrypha, these extra books are in there, and so we're going to include them in our Bible. So that's what happened. For hundreds and hundreds of years, these books were included because they were part of the Greek Bible that everyone was using. But then at the time of the Reformation, in about the 1500s, 1600s, when some people started to go back to basics and say, okay, well, let's not take everything for granted. Let's go back and look at the original texts. They said, no, we're just going to focus on the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, which doesn't have the Apocrypha. And so that's why the Protestant church, which is us, the Anglican Church, the Uniting Church, most of the other churches except Catholic and Orthodox. That's why we don't have the Apocrypha in there because we went back to the beginnings, so this is what we think should be in there, uh, whereas the Catholic Church has held on to that. So hopefully that all makes sense. Again, if you want clarification on that, come and see me afterwards. There was also a question in this, though, about books like the Gospel of Thomas. So, okay, the Apocrypha, there's nothing inherently wrong with what's in there. Some people would say it's actually really interesting and it's helpful in terms of how to live your life. And so I have a Bible that's got the Apocrypha in there. And so it's interesting to read. Uh, but what about the books that didn't make either of the Bibles? And the example that was given was the Gospel of Thomas. 
And this one in particular is one that kicked in because of these authors who are throwing up all of these conspiracy theories. And so the Gospel of Thomas, who has ever read the Gospel of Thomas or knows what's in it? That's what I suspected. Okay, one person. So So the Gospel of Thomas is actually just 114 sayings. That's literally all it is. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. 114 sayings. And some of them make a lot of sense. So number 54 says, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so that we'd like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That sounds similar to what we've got in Matthew and Luke. So that's really great. However, some of them make absolutely no sense whatsoever. So I'll give you another example. Number seven, and this is literally what it says. Jesus said, blessed is the lion which becomes man when consumed by man. And cursed is the man whom the lion consumes and the lion becomes man. So, exactly, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So, uh, if you are a lion and you get eaten by a man, then you're blessed because you become a man. Uh, But if you are a man who gets eaten by a lion, uh, then you're cursed. So, sorry about that. Uh, But the lion becomes a man because it ate a man. Like, what? And I cannot imagine Jesus saying anything like this. So, this is an example of authenticity where we would say, does this make any sense whatsoever? Does this sound like the sort of stuff that Jesus would say? Probably not. And so this and some other ones are the reasons why the Gospel of Thomas was not included in the Bible, because it just is this list of sayings. Some of them don't make any sense. It doesn't talk about any of the events that were happening with Jesus, like we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, including important events like Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, It doesn't explain anything whatsoever. And so the early church made a decision to say, no, this one is not going to make the cut. So this is a really great example because often we hear about the Gospel of Thomas, but then we're just like, oh, there must be these other books. It's really good for us to take the time to read these documents. You can find them all on the internet. Uh, And if someone else is asking you and saying, oh, the Bible can't be real because they left all these documents out, ask them what books they're talking about and ask them, have you read them yourself? because often they won't have either. And as soon as you start reading them, you're like, oh, that makes sense. I can see why that was not included in the Bible. So the last part of this is the question around the King James translation then. So why the Catholic Bible versus the King James, for example? And I thought this was a good opportunity just for us to talk very briefly about different translations of the Bible, because this is sometimes something that other people ask or sometimes something that we can be confused about as well. So the first English translation was created in the 14th century. English had started to become a normal language by that point, and so people were using it more, and so someone said we should translate all of the Bible into English. And then there was a few other translations that followed after that, but the English monarchy was not very happy with some of what was in these English translations for two major reasons. The first was that it didn't talk enough about the structure of the Church of England. So they didn't feel like the structure that the Church of England, England, the Anglican Church, with bishops and priests and the way that they were structured was represented well enough in the uh, English translation. And they also felt like the fact that kings and queens are ordained by God was not strongly communicated enough either. And in actual fact, there was some stuff that kind of undermined that a little bit, which they weren't very happy with. And so in the early 1600s, King James 
became the king of England, and he said, we're going to fix this. We're going to come up with a new Bible, an English translation, that fixes all of those problems. And so the King James Version was then created. Now, to be fair, it was the most accurate Bible of the time, because the other English translations had kind of been done by one or two people. They brought a whole bunch of scholars together to be able to work out what should the English translation be like. They uh, also used a number of new tools that were available, including interpreting Jewish scriptures and how that all worked. So in some ways, it's a really, really helpful translation. And it was very poetic as well. It is one of, well known as one of the most amazing pieces of English literature that's ever been written. And it had an influence on lots of other pieces of English literature as well. And if you read the Psalms in the King James translation, you'll find that it is beautifully, beautifully written. But it is interesting that the whole reason why this was created was for a very, very specific agenda. The king saying, we want to prove that you need to respect the king and we want you to make sure that you know our way of doing church is the best way of doing it. That's why the King James translation was brought into being and yet there's been a movement for hundreds and hundreds of years of people saying the King James translation is the only legitimate translation of the Bible. We have to get back to the King James translation. And so this is where it's helpful to talk about the other part of that. So translations are done a couple of ways, word for word, which means you take a word that's in Hebrew or in Greek or whatever language it was in, and you literally translate that for the English word and then the next word and the next word and so on. The challenge with that is that if you do that, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense some of the time. And so the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, is a word-for-word translation. And if you look at that, there are some passages that are almost unreadable because they just don't make any sense because they have literally gone word, 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 and translated it that way. What we normally rely on is more thought for thought. So rather than just putting the words there, we take the thought that's there as well and try to make sure that the English sentence we've got makes sense. And so translations like the NIV, the New International Version, or the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, are generally the translations that most people go to to say these are very accurate. They're partly word for word, but they're also thought for thought, and they've kind of merged those together to give us a really accurate translation that's there. There's then a couple of other translations, the Good News Translation, which is what we use every week, and the New Living Translation, uh, which is my personal favourite, where those English words have then been simplified down. So the NIV and the NRSV can actually be fairly complex to try and read. Some of the language is very hard and it's very theological. There's some other translations that have been done that are supposed to simplify that down so that normal everyday people like us can read them and understand them. And then finally, the message translation, which we often use uh, as well, is neither of those. So it's not word for word or thought for thought. The message was written by a pastor in the United States whose name was Eugene Peterson, a beautiful man, who went back to the original languages and said, I'm not going to try and translate this word for word or thought for thought. I'm going to go back and say, how would the original hearers have understood what's been written here? Because the Bible was written in very earthy language for normal people to be able to understand. So he said, if that was being written today in English, what sorts of things could we understand that they were saying? And so some people don't like the message because it's not a literal translation. It's more of what we call an interpretation. But I think it comes alive, which is why we use it regularly, and helps us to understand some things because it's written in language that makes sense to us 
the same way as the original Bible was. So, as I said, some of you switched off 10 minutes ago. That's okay. Some of you, it's like, wow, that's the most fascinating history lesson I've ever had in my entire life. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What I do want to say as we wrap up, so come back to me. It's okay. We're going to finish now. As we wrap up, what I do want to say about all of this, because we can get wrapped up in a lot of very complex questions about the Bible and miss something that's really, really important. And so final thought, next slide, guys, is why do we read the Bible at all? And my answer to that would be to discover Jesus and how to follow him. At the end of the day, that's why we read the Bible. We believe that the Bible does show us God's big story, which shows us who Jesus is. And Jesus shows us exactly what God is like, but then gives us the opportunity to be able to follow Jesus. At the end of the day, that's why we read the Bible. And so when people get into these complicated debates about where the Bible come from, it's really good to give solid answers to that because there are solid answers. But at the end of the day, I'm a pretty simple guy. I want to just come back and say... Honestly, some of that stuff doesn't matter. And I've said to some people at times, I don't need any more than what's already in the Bible. Because if I spend my whole life just trying to understand and put into practice what's in the Bible now, that's more than enough for me. Far more than enough for me. Just what's in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the letters that come after that is more than enough for me. And honestly, if we just had Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, if that was all I had, just to be able to understand who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and to be able to understand his teaching, that would be more than enough. And I've even said sometimes, if I just had Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, if that was all I had, those three chapters of the Bible, that's more than enough for the rest of my life to try and put into practice what it says there. If I genuinely want to follow Jesus... There's so much for me to unpack with what's already there. I don't need to worry about, well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Or what about what Judas said? Or whoever else. It doesn't matter. I've got plenty to go on with what's here. So those are interesting conversations. But at the end of the day, for us, we are simple people. Where we want to be able to come back and be able to say, what does it look like for us just to follow Jesus? So I'm going to pray. And uh, then we're going to gather around the communion table. Because that's where we have the opportunity to be able to remember exactly that. So let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are a God who's comfortable with our questions. That as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, even after your death and resurrection, after you'd spent time with the disciples, there were still those who had doubts. And yet you were comfortable to give them the commission to go out and to change the world. And so we're really grateful that we have the privilege of being able to wrestle with questions, that you've put us in a spiritual family where it's safe for us to be able to wrestle with the questions that we have, where it's okay for us to name the things that we're struggling with and the doubts that we have. But at the same time, I pray that you would help us to move away from the times when some of that can be interesting but distracting. The times when, and I know I've had this happen for me, I just chase after things that ultimately don't make a difference about how I need to live my life if I'm going to follow you. And so I do pray that you would give us confidence that as we continue to move forward, as we continue to unpack the things that we unpack together, it's good for us to wrestle with these things. But ultimately, regardless of what we've talked about, to be able to come back to this truth, that Jesus, you come to show us what God is like. You come to set us free. You come to allow us to be able to live lives the way that we were created to live. 
We're so grateful that we have your teaching. We're so grateful that we have the rest of Scripture that helps us to understand that. We're so grateful for the examples that we have of people who've done that well and people who've done that poorly. We're grateful for people like Paul, who was so amazing to be able to understand so much truth and pass that on to us. But at the end of the day, we want to follow you, Jesus. And so I pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us in that. Help us as we move into the rest of today, into the rest of this week, to be in a place where we can continue to follow you and continue to be aware of what you're doing in our lives and through our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.